Hello and welcome. I'm your host Pooja Sarkar and you're listening to the podcast from the bookshelves of Forbes India. As I announced 4 weeks back that Forbes India with HarperCollins India has launched a reset podcast series where we promise to bring you some riveting reads from their collection. Today is the last episode of the Rika series and for that I decided to pick up the brand custodian My Years with the Tatas by Mukund Govindrajan. where he discusses Ratan Tata some of the boredom battles including the recent one between Cyrus Mistry and Ratan Tata his journey over the years in the group also did you know that the architect who designed Gateway of India has also designed the Bombay house the corporate headquarters of the Tata group the book is quite interesting filled with anecdotes and many many stories so now let's speak to Mr Rajan about his book the first question that's popped to my mind is In the introduction, you talk about the cautionary tale for Tata Group to reinvent itself and find new business models, or succumb to great challenges it faces, like other corporates. Uh, you have cited the example of GE in the same. So, can you elaborate on that? And you know, what are the new wheels of growth that you see for the group? So, what I was trying to allude to in the book uh, is the fact that uh, Tatas have a presence across many different businesses. and uh, as we've seen with general electric it uh, is not very easy to chart the fortunes of each of those individual businesses uh, in an optimal fashion all the time and as a result there are situations where some businesses are floundering other businesses are doing a little better and sometimes if you're managing a diverse portfolio you have to make a call on what businesses make the most sense for the portfolio where the real skill sets at management lie now in the case of tatas i think in the last uh, 30 years uh, particularly since uh, liberalization there have been many businesses the group has actually exited if you think about the early 1990s for instance uh, tatas used to be in businesses like uh, tomco with soaps and chemicals uh, lakme with cosmetics they used to be in paints they used to be in pharmaceuticals with companies like tata pharma and merin Uh, eventually they got out of all of these businesses because there was a belief that uh, the group was not as adept at managing these kinds of businesses and perhaps handing over the management to another group in, in the case of Tomco and Lever it was of course in the Sun Unilever uh, might make more sense likewise i think at this point of time tatas are at a little bit of a crossroads but this crossroads is i think more critical than at any time before because it is also a crossroads when you have to decide what the values that inspire the group are going to be are they the same values that have inspired the group for almost uh, 150 plus years or are they going to be something different in today's day and age if the focus is just going to be on profitability then i think uh, many businesses that are part of the group today perhaps will not find a place in the tatas of tomorrow on the other hand if the value system that drives the group is going to speak to considerations like a strong commitment to job creation and nation building then perhaps some of these businesses will survive and will be sustained with a lot of investment being made in them and i'm thinking of businesses like steel and auto for instance that uh, have made the group proud in years past you ask about uh, opportunities for the future i think there are several that the group is already invested in uh, some of these are relatively new not just for tatas but for corporate india so i'm thinking of defense for instance which used to be the domain of the public sector in the past and now private companies are making a major foray tatas are perhaps the biggest 
private player in defense today. And at the time when the government is talking about make in India and has large defense investment plans, that could be an important business for the group going forward. Likewise, financial services. Uh, we burnt our fingers with a company called Tata Finance, which had to be closed down after a scandal which saw the CEO being jailed. But subsequently, another company, Tata Capital, was floated in 2007. And that company, I think, has significant prospects going forward. If there is one thing that Tata's are known for in India, it is for a trusted way of doing business, which makes the most kind of sense in financial services, where trust is a major requirement. That could be a business for the future. Similarly, retail, people don't necessarily realize, except for very close, intimate Tata Group watchers, that a company like Titan today has become so strong in retail that its market cap is in fact larger than the combined market caps of Tata Motors and Tata Steel put together. So I think you're seeing interesting businesses. Some have been around for a little while, some have huge prospects going forward. The one business where I would imagine uh, you can make all kinds of investments in the future, and that is really the future, is the convergence of communication and uh, internet services and IT services, where obviously through TCS you have great strengths, but you also have companies like Tata Communications, in today's world where we're all working from home, relying on broadband services, internet connectivity, and looking for uh, new applications that can make life a little easier going forward, I would imagine that continued investment in IT is going to be critical for the group to retain its uh, salience as uh, perhaps India's largest uh, corporate group going forward. There's one thing that I wanted to understand. This is something that a lot of people keep asking also, uh, that Tata Group has these hundreds of companies. Uh, they might not have the Tata brand going with them, but there, there are so many companies. But as you also wrote in the book that the top five or six co companies contribute nearly 90% uh, to the revenues. What should be done going forward? Do you stick to having so many companies together or there will be rationalization in that? I think rationalization is inevitable. And as I mentioned, in the 1990s, there was a fair amount of that that happened. Uh, it's also important to be able to take the long view. And there are many businesses which require uh, a fairly uh, extended runway, if you will, before they're ready for liftoff. And let me give you two examples. Uh, one is of uh, the highest market cap company in the Tata Group today, TCS, Tata Consultancy Services. It actually started way back uh, in the 1960s. And over time, it slowly grew. Even as, early, as, as, as recently as the early 90s, uh, they hadn't even clocked 100 crores in turnover. And yet today, the market cap is uh, probably 70% odd of the market cap of the entire Tata portfolio. So you've had to back this business for close to half a century before you started seeing the significant dividends. And a lot of that, of course, came with Y2K around the cusp of the century. And then uh, subsequently the way in which Mr. Ramadurai uh, and the team at TCS built the business going forward. Uh, the other company that is again, as I mentioned earlier, very strong on market cap is Titan. Now Titan actually, its initial foray into watches sort of uh, went along reasonably smoothly. And then they tried the hand at jewelry under a new brand name of Tanishq. And it took several years before that business actually took off. And there was a point of time, which I mentioned in my book, when perhaps there was even a view that the jewelry business should be exited or closed down. And I know that managers at Titan were extremely concerned over the future prospects of the business and, of course, the people employed in that part of the business. 
it didn't happen and look at where we are today where tanish accounts for the majority of titan's turnover and a significant part of its profitability so i think sometimes you have to back interesting businesses uh, not just for one or two years but sometimes for decades before they actually deliver the kind of returns and promise that may have been initially anticipated so while there will be many businesses that the group ought not to be in because the result in uh, resources time management bandwidth being squandered i think there are a number of interesting smaller businesses that should be in a sense uh, incubated groomed for a while before you take a final decision but yes i think there are many people who watch the group who would say that there are far too many businesses for it to make sense at the moment so there's something interesting that you talk about and there are some very interesting stories there in your book uh, first i would uh, first uh, there was this one incident that you talked about where ratan tata was a prankster and he wanted to put a uh, plastic snake in the shoes of dr baba and then you stopped him from doing all of that and hence i just want to come to the fact that you know you've worked with mr ratan ratan tata so closely uh, over the years how and you've written extensively about how you've seen him change over the years i just wanted to understand your perspective on him working with him so closely i think he was a, a delight to work with um, i think all his staffers will vouch for that over the years uh, he was extremely grounded Uh, not somebody who would stand on protocol or seniority or uh, any sense of uh, uh, conceit that he was uh, more knowledgeable or uh, had any greater capabilities than the man next to him uh, people at airports would remark at the wondrous sight of a corporate chieftain from india carrying his own bags and not having a retinue that would be uh, wandering around him trying to uh, help him out so an extremely grounded individual and uh, somebody was very very easy to work with i think in the early years um and the the incident that you mentioned i think is an illustration of his sense of humor his fantastic mimicry skills uh, was another thing that made us all laugh and the only thing i feel sad about is over the years i think the repeated crisis situations the group had to encounter and obviously as the leader he was at the receiving end of a lot of the tension the stress and sometimes the criticism uh, i think his sense of humor sort of diminished over time uh, or at least he could not express himself as openly and uh, powerfully as as we would all see uh, when we were working closely with him in the early years uh, but uh, a genuine person and somebody that uh, it was a great pleasure to work with for so many years there's this thing about uh, the tata group there is a, there's tata sons and then which holds all the companies if we could take the listeners through you know the tata trust structure uh, and you know over the years we have seen that the tata trust structures try to acquire more control across group companies and then also you had this brand equity business promotion concept uh, if you could talk about the challenges it faced in the early years and both the set and how it has evolved over time because you've seen it very closely so uh, i think the tata group from outside can look a little uh, complex and difficult to understand but just to make it relatively simple uh, it's thinking about the group in the context of a pyramid uh, so at the top of that pyramid uh, stand the tata trusts uh, as principal shareholders of the group holding company uh, which is called tata sons 
so the Tata Trusts, uh, which are charities, essentially hold around two thirds of the shareholding in Tata Sons. Tata Sons is an unlisted uh, company. It, in turn, as the holding company of the group, uh, holds equity stakes in pretty much uh, all the major Tata companies. Uh, in the case of the 30 odd listed companies, these stakes vary from around 70 odd percent in the case of TCS, which is probably the highest holding, uh, to Tata Communications around 50% plus. And most of the rest of the famous companies you would have heard of, Tata Steel, Tata Motors, Indian Hotels, uh, Tata Consumer Products, and so on, anywhere between uh, 25 to around 35%. So it's a pyramid structure. Uh, the listed companies, uh, obviously, at the base of the pyramid are uh, managed with uh, boards, where usually what happens is the chairman of these listed company boards, the large company certainly, is the person who's also the chairman of Tata Sons. So uh, in recent times, the chairman of Tata Sons has uh, led pretty much the quote-unquote Tata group. Uh, but what is different in recent times from what used to be the case when Mr. Tata was uh, leading the group or before him, his predecessor, J.R.D. Tata, who was chairman for 53 years, uh, was leading the group, is the fact that the chairman of the Tata Trusts, uh, when Ratan Tata or J.R.D. Tata were chairman, was also the chairman of Tata Sons. But in recent years, under Cyrus Mistri and Chandrasekharan, the chairman of the Tata Trusts is a different person, continues to be Ratan Tata, but the chairman of Tata Sons is a different person. So the inability to combine the leadership at these very important stakeholders for other Tata Group companies has meant that there have sometimes been differences, sometimes been questions around governance, which has made uh, the smooth functioning of the entire group a bit more awkward and problematic. And this became most evident when Cyrus Musti was chairman of Tata Sons. And there were strong differences between him and Ratan Tata, most of which is in the public domain or before the judiciary now. There's something interesting that you talked about. The uh, You talked about Mr. Cyrus Mistri and the boardroom battle of Mr. Cyrus Mistri versus Mr. Ratan Tata is one of the biggest and yet the most bitter battles of corporate India in the recent times. And you were there in the thick of things. So I just wanted to understand uh, how was the day like? How did it move? And uh, looking back at it, how could have things been done differently? And what is your takeaway from all of that? My own sense is that uh, many of the differences that crept up uh, were differences of perception. Um, I'm not sure that they necessarily needed to be resolved with the uh, direct action that eventually took place, which is essentially um, removing Cyrus Mistri from the chairmanship of Tata Sons. Um, I think the basis on which it was done and the fact that it was done a few months before his contract as executive chairman was to expire um, without allowing the contract to run its, its way out uh, is something inexplicable in my mind. Uh, what it did do, therefore, was to create enormous uh, bitterness at the level of the shareholders. Because remember, the Palanji Mystery family is a very important shareholder, that they are the largest individual shareholders in Tata Sons. Uh, next only to the Tata Trust. So this is not just a difference between two individuals or questions around governance of Tata Sons, but it was also a difference between two shareholders. Uh, 
who you would have imagined had a combined joint interest in seeing the entity perform well. And uh, when you look at what has happened in subsequent years, uh, the fact is that many of the challenges that Cyrus Masri was dealing with continue to be challenges under his successors, Ratan Tata's interim chairman, and then uh, Chandrasekhar now as chairman for almost three years. And it doesn't appear that many of the situations that Cyrus was dealing with have changed dramatically. Uh, companies that were stressed uh, in 2016 when Cyrus was removed, uh, such as Tata Steel, Tata Power, um, the telecom business all continue to be under similar pressures, in some cases, even greater pressures. And if anything, the COVID crisis has made all of this even more problematic. There is uh, one question that has been in my mind for some time. Uh, over the last decade, we have seen uh, the Tata Group, a lot of the companies reinvent themselves. For example, Tata Motors coming up with new line of cars, etc. Uh, but there is something, uh, there are two people. One is Neera Radia, uh, the entire 2G scam that... Uh, that just blew up for the Tata group. And then the second is the connection with Mr. Siva Sankaran. If you could, who's also called as Siva. So I wanted to understand these two important factors who have been part of the Tata group over the last decade. And although both the relationships have quite ended in a, in a manner, nobody would have wanted it to. But if you could just take the listeners through those relationships. So both the individuals you mentioned, I think, uh, were again uh, larger-than-life figures. They left a strong imprint on the landscape. Uh, but in specific sectors or areas uh, where I think Tata's and in particular Ratan Tata needed uh, help. Uh, in the case of Mr. Shivashankaran, he was somebody who had uh, played in the Indian telecom space for years before uh, we became a very large telecom uh, player ourselves. And I think uh, at the time that he became uh, both an informal and to some extent a formal advisor uh, to some of the Tata companies, in particular Tata Teleservices, uh, he supported us on uh, some of our vendor engagement procurement activities. And later his company has received the contracts to build out networks for Tata companies at uh, Tata Teleservice and Tata Teleservice Maharashtra. Uh, I think in all of these spaces, he performed uh, rather well. Uh, as a person, he obviously had his own uh, personality. He was an entrepreneur who has had to, in the past, bet the shirt on his back several times uh, to be successful in business. And I think to have the insights of somebody who was an outsider, uh, had grown successful businesses um, in a very tough landscape, fighting some of the biggest competitors in India, uh, I think was a revelation to us in Tata's and we learned quite a few smart things from him and from his team. So uh, I think people did find it a little curious because as an individual, he was almost in many ways uh, the opposite of uh, a lot of the personality that Mr. Tata had. Mr. Tata was tall, he was short, Mr. Tata was fair. <laughs> he was uh, swarthy. Uh, Mr. Tata had a very gentle uh, gentleman's approach he would deal with people. Shivashankaran could uh, scare the living daylights out of some of the vendors who would meet us. So very different people. But I think in some ways, this, this is when they say opposites attract. And uh, complementary skill sets in, in some cases. Uh, obviously, when you uh, work with such people, you have to 
be very clear uh, where the lines are drawn in terms of how much involvement each has in the other's business. Uh, and that's, that's a line that has to be very carefully drawn. In my book, I talk about episodes that took place where perhaps uh, some bitterness was left within the Tata system because it was unused to having to deal with the force of nature like Shiva. In the case of Neera Radhi, I think, again, she came in with a specific mandate, which was to consolidate the public relations uh, activity of the Tata companies. And some of this was going back to the point I made earlier about uh, trying to create uh, greater cohesion in the Tata group, greater unity, ensuring that the whole was greater than some of the parts. So before she entered the system with her company that she created for us called Vaishnavi, which took on the PR mandate for all Tata companies, each Tata company used to have its own way of doing things. Each had its own PR agency, each had its own advisors, each would talk to the media, uh, maybe in slightly different ways. So you weren't really getting the benefit of being one Tata group if you had multiple different voices speaking to the media and communicating what some of the key issues inside the group were. So I think her entry was really an effort to consolidate our public relations stance, our media engagement. Uh, and over the years, therefore, she became a very strong influence on the way we conducted our affairs. And over a period of time, including our understanding of how Delhi worked. Uh, and you have to remember some of the largest investment startups were making in the period when she was with us was in telecoms. It was at that time, uh, between the, perhaps 2002 and 2010, uh, one of the businesses in which the largest amount of capital investment in the Tata Group's history was being made whether it was for network equipment or whether it was for licenses for Spectrum. And therefore, our understanding of government and uh, telecom ministry policies was, was going to be critical. And she brought a lot of understanding and knowledge of how the whole system worked. Sure. There's one thing I wanted to understand. You know, you went to Oxford University, you completed your course, and then you joined, uh, then you were selected a task, and you've been in the group for so long, and you had, uh, you've held so many positions from uh, telecom to the private equity fund, and then going back again to the firm. Uh, what has been your experience working there, and what have been your learnings? I think uh, I was extremely privileged, I was extremely fortunate uh, for the time I spent in the Tatas and particularly the people I worked with. Uh, I think uh, those are rare opportunities uh, to work with some of the uh, uh, greatest managers one could uh, imagine one would ever spend time with. And then the trust in uh, somebody for much of my career who was quite young in different roles, I think was extraordinary for a group to take big bets um, and trust a young person to lead businesses, I think was, was amazing. So uh, I was extremely privileged. I think what I took away from the group, which is what I'm now spending a lot of my time on, is the uh, focus on corporate governance and my interest in sustainability, uh, which goes back to, you mentioned Oxford, my doctoral dissertation was on the politics of climate change and other global environmental issues. And I think I wrote the first book on Indian policy on these issues. Uh, so I've been tracking climate change for the last 30 years. And uh, I think when I left Tata's, the uh, experience I'd had on both the corporate governance front uh, as chief ethics officer, amongst other things, of Tata Sons, and also my interest in sustainability, I chaired the Tata Sustainability Council, have been very helpful in uh, navigating this new space called ESG, or environment, social, and governance, which is becoming, I think, the big new thematic 
for uh, large numbers of investors around the world. So I think my, my Tata tenure was rich with experience, uh, anecdotal and otherwise, and uh, helped me with uh, some very important uh, skills and training that are going to be very useful in the years ahead. Finally, before I let you go, the last question would be on uh, the coronavirus outbreak has had a huge impact on everyone around. Uh, how do you see uh, Data Group coping up with it? And in general, how do you see the economy coping up with it? I think in the next few days, we will see what the decision is on the lifting of the lockdown and how business and industry will be allowed to get back to hopefully full capacity uh, in the next year or so. But it's going to be a slow climb, uh, an uphill climb uh, for industry uh, because I think the impact of just the last uh, two months of lockdown has been huge. Uh, it has disrupted the economy in a way nothing else could have. Uh, perhaps the closest that you can think of to a situation like this is if there had been major uh, war on some of your borders. Uh, but this goes even beyond that in some, some cases in some industries. Uh, so, for instance, you think about aviation. Tata's are very big on aviation with Vistara and Air Asia India. You think about hospitality. Tata's are big on hospitality with Indian hotels. Uh, so, I think there are going to be industries that are going to take a long time to get back to any sense of normalcy simply because of the precautions people are going to take thanks to the virus. Demand is going to take a long time to come back to normal because people have been through a lot recently. They understand the value of having savings. They understand the value of having jobs. A lot of people have lost jobs. So I think the desire to spend freely is not going to be there for quite some time, which is going to hamper, I think, an economic recovery for a while. And uh, the, the situation has been uh, compounded by the fact that government, which has been a very big spender over the last couple of years, and in some ways has shored up significant parts of the economy, including infrastructure, uh, is dramatically uh, going to be uh, overplaying the fiscal deficit and lacking in resources to be able to spend freely. That's quite interesting. Thank you so much for your time and thank you uh, for being on the podcast.